you. Let me pray for us as we turn to look at that together. Father God, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together, may they be pleasing in your sight, our Lord, our Rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, I I was in my mid-twenties, and I was asked uh, by by a young man who'd just become a Christian to be his best man at his wedding. Now, now the wedding, it it was a little bit weird for, for a number of reasons. But the thing that really, really stuck in my mind was what happened in his groom's speech. Uh, my, my poor friend, uh, as he started his speech, and he was, he was a little bit nervous, he decided that a good way to start the speech was to share some of the nicknames, the, the pet names he had for his new wife. And the first pet name he shared was Chicken. Chicken. All could start to his speech. You know, he didn't call her my love or my dearest or, or the best wife in the world. No, he called her chicken. Now, he realized things were going bad in the speech. So he tried to dig himself out of the hole that he was creating. And so he decided to give the reason why he called her chicken. And he said, uh, well, it's because she looks like a chicken. <laughs> At which point, all of his guests started booing and jeering him. Saying that your wife looks like a chicken on your wedding day is not the sort of thing a groom should do. Note well any of you who are planning to get married in the next year or so. And you know what? Saying, I am the light of the world, verse 12 of our passage, On the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, that is not the sort of thing that a young carpenter from Galilee, like Jesus, should do. Yet that is exactly what we find him doing here in John chapter 8. Chapter 7, verse 37, it gives us the context of what we've just had read. And there we discover that the Feast of Tabernacles is just drawing to a close. Now, now let me give you a little bit of background about the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a festival to celebrate the ingathering of the harvest. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, It was the most popular festival in the whole Jewish calendar. The people loved this one. And what it was, it was basically a visual aid to to help them to remember, to, to help the Israelites look back at their history. So on the first day of the feast, in the temple courts, in the very place we're told Jesus was standing, verse 20 of chapter 8, the people... They would come together and they would set up huge lamps, huge lights. They'd pour oil into gigantic bowls and then they'd use their old trousers and their old underwear. Really, they used their underwear for this to create wicks for these huge bowls of oil and then they'd light the wicks and the huge lamp would shine in the temple courts each and every night of the festival. And this light in the lamps, it was massively symbolic. You see, it pointed backwards to creation. 
where, where the Lord God himself said, let there be light and there was light, Genesis chapter 1. But it also pointed back to another event, uh, to the event recorded in the book of Exodus, where the Lord God led his people out of captivity in Egypt by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire, light by night. Now, with that context in place, do you see the significance of what Jesus says here in verse 12 as he stands among those lamps and he declares, I, I am the light of the world. You might come across this. People sometimes uh, who are not Christians, they, they sometimes ask, well, well, you say Jesus is God, but why do you say that? Where did Jesus claim to be God? Now, the answer is he claimed it in a lot of places in the Bible. And surely this chapter, chapter 8, verse 12, is one of those places. He's saying, you remember creation when God said, let there be light. That was me. You remember the exodus when God led his people out of captivity by a pillar of light. That was me. You remember how the prophets spoke about a time when the Lord will come as the light of his salvation to the nations. That was me. I I am the Lord. It's a stunning claim. Absolutely breathtaking. And you know, it has radical implications for us here today in 21st century Los Angeles. Now, now we're going to look at verses 12 to 30 this morning. We need to understand that when Jesus says, I am the light, he's saying that as a metaphor. He's not saying, I am a gigantic halogen bowl. Okay, that's to miss the point. What he's saying is that what light does, I do in the world. What light does, I do in the world. And he wants us to see the two things that light does, he does in the world. And those two things are these. Firstly, light brings truth. That's verses 13 to 20. And then secondly, light brings life. That's verses 21 to 30. So let's look at truth, first of all, verses 13 to 20. Uh, When I was a college student, um, I, I went with a bunch of friends to see Phil Collins playing live. Do you remember Phil Collins? That is how trendy I was as a college student. Uh, we were in a bit of a rush uh, to get to the arena um, and, and one of my housemates, she had forgotten to bring her, her wallet with her. So she rushed back into the house. Now, now as she rushed back into the house to get her wallet, she, she had two options. Option one, was to try to get her wallet as quickly as possible so we wouldn't be late for the concert by not turning the lights on. Or or option two was to do things sensibly, to go in slowly, to turn on the lights, to then go to her room and find her wallet. Sadly, she chose option number one. She she ran straight up the stairs into her bedroom, not realising that she shut the door, and she ran straight into the door of her room. She was left concussed, still determined to go to the Phil Collins concert. She went. Uh, By the time we got there, she was throwing up and vomiting. 
You see, light reveals. Light gives truth. And that is exactly what Jesus is claiming for himself here in John chapter 8. And the Pharisees are outraged. They say, who are you? How, how dare you, Galilean carpenter, make a claim like that? Show us the evidence. Give us a witness to back up your claim that you bring truth. Well, look at Jesus' response, verse 14. He says, I don't need another witness. Why? Well, because I know where I came from and where I am going. You know, Jesus does have lots of evidence for who he is. Back in chapter 5, in a very similar conversation with the Jewish leaders, he showed how John the Baptist, how the Old Testament prophet, how God the Father himself, how they had all testified to exactly who he is. And here in chapter 8, verse 18, Jesus calls again two witnesses, himself and God the Father. He says, already I have the two witnesses that the Old Testament law requires. Can't, Can't you see that? But I don't need to. One will do, because verse 14, I know where I came from and where I am going. Do you get the subtlety of what Jesus is saying here? Because of his divine origin, because of where he has come from, he can testify on his own behalf. He has divine authority. Um, in the UK, we do most of our shopping online, our grocery shopping. So, so we have a truck that comes to our house and, and delivers our shopping to us. Isn't that brilliant? Wouldn't you love that it's here in LA? The, the advanced United Kingdom. Um, but sometimes, sometimes, sometimes we're missing something in those orders that come each week. So sometimes I have to go to, to the huge Walmart grocery store just up the road from us. The problem I have every time I go to Walmart, though, is that I am paralysed by the choice I find on those grocery store shelves. So I go, and I want to buy myself some breakfast, okay? We've run out of breakfast. In England, we eat cereal for every single breakfast. We don't have pancakes and waffles and all the good stuff you have. Just plain old cereal. But I get to the cereal aisle... And I'm paralysed by choice. What do I choose? Do I choose the, the, the Weetos, the Pops, the Cheerios, the Cocoa Pops, the Corn Flakes, the Crunchy Nut Corn Flakes? How, how do I choose what I'm going to buy? Maybe you're here today and you feel that way about belief. You think, how am I supposed to, to, to decide what is true? How, how can I know? There's just so many different ways to believe. There's so much choice out there. How do I know what to believe? You know, that, that is very much a 21st century American problem. If you'd grown up in 17th century America, long before Los Angeles existed, then you would have found that pretty much everyone believed in the God of the Bible. But not anymore. And it looks like in the years to come, it will become even less so. 
according to research undertaken eight years ago in the UK, only 24% of British men believe in God. Only 24% believe in God at all. That, that includes Muslims. It includes every sort of believer. Only 24%. And among those who do believe in God, there's an eye-watering choice of what God to believe in. Do, do you believe in Allah? Do you believe in Ganesh? Do you believe in Krishna, Yahweh, Zenu, Shiva? Who do you choose? Which God on the grocery store aisle will you pick? We know verses 13 to 14, they make it easy. As Jesus stands beside the, the huge lamp at the Feast of Tabernacles and says, I am the light of the world. As Jesus claims, verse 14, to, to belong to heaven, to be the one who has the right to judge alongside God the Father, verse 16, we have our answer of who to pick on the grocery store shelf of beliefs. It's Jesus. He alone claims to actually be God. God in human flesh. The glory light of the Feast of Tabernacles points only to him. You see, every other religion claims to point to the light. Only Jesus claims to be the light. Uh, Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, has a really helpful illustration here. He says, Jesus claimed to be the sun. Everything else in the world is simply a moon. You know, the, the other worldviews out there, they, they contain much that is true, much that is good. There are plenty of things that are true in Islam, in Hinduism, in Judaism, in Buddhism. But that's only because they are moves. Only because in some small way, they reflect back something of the light of truth that is Jesus himself. The rest in them is darkness. Jesus alone is the sun. Now, you might be here and, and hearing this and thinking, oh, goodness, Ralph, isn't that horribly arrogant? To come here and, and to claim that, that what you say is truth and everything else must be examined against it. That, that all the other worldviews are just simply imperfect reflections of the light of what you believe. Well, you know what? I'm only saying what the founders of all those other religions claim for themselves. But they all claim to be moons. Muhammad, Guru Nanak, Buddha, even Karl Marx, they only ever claim to point to the truth. They only ever claim to be moons. Jesus alone is the one who claimed to be truth itself, to be the sun itself. 
Now just stop for a moment and think what that means for us today. Firstly, it means that he is pure light. You see, every other claim to truth, it it needs to be weighed. It needs to be tested. It it needs to be corroborated by some other form of evidence. Just the sort of thing that the Pharisees were demanding in verse 13. But you know, if Jesus claims to be, if if Jesus is who he claims to be, if, if he is truth itself, then when he speaks, he speaks with absolute authority because his words, verse 15, they are not according to the flesh. They are not according to human standards. Rather, they are from heaven. Now, now don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that the claims of Jesus do not stand up to scrutiny. I'm not saying that it's wrong to test and examine what we find here in the Bible. Far from it. I'm convinced that the claims of, of Jesus Christ, they will stand up to scrutiny if you seek to do that. But if Jesus is who he claims to be, if Jesus is the Son itself, then Jesus is the ultimate arbiter of truth. He is the one who examines us, not us examining him. Which means, secondly, that Jesus is guiding light. Look again at verse 12 with me. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let me ask you, how how do you know whether you really believe something is true? How how do you know whether it's it's a real belief or or just something you're kind of a stage you're going through? Uh, When I was growing up, I had a terrible, terrible fear of heights. My parents put me in the attic room in our house and that was about as high as I was willing to get. But then when I was at university, in my second year at university, uh, my, my housemates convinced me to go and do a parachute jump. That's crazy. So it's the first time I've been in an aeroplane for, for a very long time. And we went up and up and up and up. We got to 3,000 foot, and then we were told to jump out the door of the aeroplane. And I was absolutely petrified. But, but the time came for me to jump. I, I was there. I was shaking. I, I literally couldn't hold on. Every part of me wanted to stay in the aeroplane, but I jumped. Why? Well, because I believed that my instructor had properly packed my parachutes, just as he told me he'd done. And that meant that everything would be all right. I believed in my instructor. We know that we believe in something when that belief causes us to do something that we otherwise would not consider doing, not for anything. Jesus is the light. He is the truth. So will you let him guide you into doing something that you just would never consider doing if he wasn't the truth? Will you let him guide you in your relationships? 
in not pursuing a relationship with that person the Bible tells you you shouldn't pursue a relationship with. Will you follow him as your guide in your finances? By giving away generously to the cause of the gospel and the needs of the poor in a way that you would never consider doing if he did not claim to be the truth. Will you consider following him in where you decide to live, living in a place that you would never consider living in if it wasn't that he was the truth? Will you consider following him in your leisure time, in not doing what everyone else in L.A. does, but prioritizing the needs of the gospel first? Will you follow him in your sex life, in saying no to what everyone is telling you to do because he is your guiding light? Will you follow him even when you really, really, really don't want to? even when his call on your life is utterly uncomfortable. Jesus gives truth. Secondly, also, Jesus gives life. Look at verses 21 to 30. Uh, Remember that we're dealing with a metaphor here. Uh, Jesus, he is the light of the world. Have you ever stopped to wonder what would happen if the sun stopped shining? I know that's impossible for you to think of living in L.A., the sun is always shining. But, But imagine what would happen if the sun suddenly stops, everything would die. We depend upon the sun to give us heat. With it, without, without the heat of the sun, the whole earth would just turn into a giant ice cube, wouldn't it? Light gives life. And the Bible teaches that truth too. So what brought life at creation when, when it was just a, a watery, watery chaos? Well, God spoke. He said, let there be light, and there was light, and life began on this earth. What gave the Israelites life as they faced the impending doom of the advancing Egyptian army at the time of the Exodus? Well, it was the pillar of fire that brought light and brought life as he led Israel out of Egypt. You see, light gives life. God's light gives life. Jesus gives life. And boy, did Jesus' listeners here at the Feast of Tabernacles need to hear that. You know, throughout the Feast of Tabernacles, there would have been dancing in the streets. As the lamps in the temple burned brightly, music was played, there was reveling, there was feasting, everyone was having a fantastic time. They were bathing in the light of the Feast of Tabernacles. But it was all a big, big lie. A mirage. Because the truth is, they were shrouded in darkness. More than that, They were dead. Uh, Look at what Jesus says in verse 21. I'm going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. You read that and it sounds pretty abrupt, doesn't it? It's pretty pretty rude even. He he says, you're going to die in your sin. But you know, what the people say next 
proves that Jesus is absolutely truthful in what he says. Because in verse 22, they they hear Jesus and they think he's about to commit suicide. You, You see, they're not able to hear that they are stumbling around in the darkness. They are dead in their sin. They are blinded by their sin. I think we need to pause here because we can hear that. We can hear that word sin. And because of what we've been kind of brought up to believe, we can really misunderstand it. You see, we tend to think of sin as being sins, as being things that we do. So, you know, society presents sin either as things that are are kind of like naughty but nice, like like having a steak with your pancakes or or having like an Oreo milkshake with a refill. You know, that's sinful. It's so naughty but nice. Or, Or else... We think of sin as being those things that, you know, we all do, but we know we shouldn't, like going 70 on the freeway. But, you know, the Bible's understanding of sin is completely different to that. It is not fundamentally about things that we do, but rather about who we are. It is not actions that we take. It is an attitude of our heart. It is rebellion against God. And you know it clouds absolutely everything that we do. Uh, Before I was a pastor, I worked as a law professor uh, at universities in Birmingham and Durham. And one of my colleagues at the University of Birmingham, she was a law professor who was doing research into jury trials. And one of her projects uh, was to look at the impact of informing a jury of the defendant's previous conviction. And the results of her research were absolutely fascinating. So the test case was that there was a man on trial for a serious sexual offence. And and there were three different juries, and and the different juries were given three different scenarios. So the, the first scenario, they were told that the defendant had a previous conviction for a sexual offence. The second jury were told that the defendant had a previous conviction for burglary. And then the third jury were told that the defendant had no previous convictions. Now, the jury was much more likely to convict the man if they were told they had a previous conviction for a sexual offence. That's unsurprising, isn't it? We'd expect that. But here's the interesting thing. They were less likely, that is, they were less likely to convict the man who had a previous offence of burglary than they were to convict the man who had no previous offences at all. It's fascinating, isn't it? You see, the jury's reasoning, it was not based on anything rational at all. It was just the view that, you know, burglars are like lovable rogues, you know. They, they do the friendly sort of crimes, like just taking a few things. And because they're kind of a lovable rogue, they, they'd never rape someone. You see, our minds, they are biased in strange, strange ways. We like to think that we are rational, neutral, independent people. 
But we like to think that when we see things, we are seeing them as they truly are. But that is simply not true. Our minds are clouded. And the Bible tells us that they are clouded by sin, by our rebellion against God. In the words of verse 23, our minds are of this world. And we cannot see the things that are not of this world, even when they're right in front of us. We're in a thick fog. Even when we've heard the same things again and again and again and again. I had to hear the good news of Christianity for two years straight before I'd finally put my trust in Jesus. Jesus is the light. He brings truth. But because of sin, we do not receive that truth. Just just go back to the sun metaphor again. The sun brings heat and it brings light, doesn't it? That's what the sun does. But that heat and that light, it is mediated. There is something in between us and the sun, the earth's atmosphere. And if the atmosphere wasn't there, the sun, instead of being a source of of light and life, the sun would be a source of death to us, wouldn't it? Bringing cancer, heat, exhaustion. Eventually, without a mediator between the sun and us, we would all die. Light brings life, but that light must be mediated. And the same is true with God and human beings. God is light. And yet when God met human beings in the Old Testament, they couldn't look on him face to face. Moses wanted to. He wanted to see God face to face. But we're told in Exodus chapter 33 that Moses could only see the behind of the Lord as he passed by. For, God says, man shall not see me and live. The light brings life, but sinful human beings, we cannot gaze upon it and live because in our sin and rebellion, we we would simply be burnt up by God's holiness and justice. God's light must be mediated. Someone must protect us sinners from the burning light of God's holiness. Which brings us to verses 27 and 28. Jesus is here as they are still in darkness. They still do not understand. And so Jesus says, verse 28, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father taught me. You know, there is only one who can stand in the presence of God's light and live. And that is God the Son, Jesus. And yet here, Jesus tells us that the light, him, will be lifted up. He's talking about something which will happen just a year later. Something he and his father had already agreed upon. A thick darkness will come and overshadow the whole land from noon until three in the afternoon. That darkness, it represents us in our rebellion and sin, and it represents God in his just judgment on us. 
But in that darkness, the, the light will be lifted up. The light of the world will be enthroned on a Roman cross as he is nailed to it. He who is innocent will be punished. Justice will be done so that guilty sinners can go free. He who is light will be exposed before darkness so that we who are darkness can be brought into the light. So that we who are dead in our sin can receive the life that is life from light. So I need to ask you this morning, will you come to that light? Will you receive his truth and his life for you today? Verse 24 tells us what we must do. We must believe, verse 24, that Jesus is he. Now, now the words used in the original here are the Greek words ego emai. Literally, that says, we must believe he is, I am. That that is the Old Testament word for God, Yahweh, the great I am. To come to Jesus for truth and life is to recognize, to trust that he is God himself. And that his death was necessary for our sin. Will you trust Jesus like that? Uh, Look again at verse 12. It says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Do you remember what I said earlier on? We know that we truly believe something when it causes us to do something that we really don't want to do. Well, following Jesus is like that. Our hearts are often still tempted by darkness. They're still drawn to to things that we once loved. They're still drawn to moons, to those things that just faintly reflect the light of Christ. I'm sure you know what that feels like. You've been going on as a Christian for a few years, but, but things haven't turned out quite how you hoped and expected. And suddenly you're being drawn back to the old habits. Maybe it's drinking too much. Maybe it's, it's flicking through those websites that you know you shouldn't be looking at. Maybe it's having those same fantasies again that you once had all the time. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Friends, the light has been lifted up on a cross for us. He has dealt with the darkness of who we once were. And he calls us today to follow him, to come to him who is truth and life. Will you do that? And will you set your heart on Christ's mission for you here as ambassadors at Christ Church LA? Will you commit your lives to being those who point others to a light? You know, that will be massively countercultural. In a city like LA, what could be more politically incorrect than doing that? To claim that Jesus is not merely one who points to light, but is light itself. But friends, if you love people, if you really love people, that is what you will do. 
Because Jesus brings truth to a world shrouded in the darkness of lies. Jesus brings life to a world of the walking dead. That, that is true here in L.A., It's true for me back in Manchester. It is true throughout the world. Will you point to the one who's the son? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, you and you alone are the light of the world. You are the one who who came to bring truth. You are truth incarnate. You are the one who came to bring life to a dead world your death in our place, the death of death in the death of Christ. And you call us now to follow, to walk in the light of truth, not in the lies of darkness, to invite others to come to the one who brings life itself. Oh Lord, give us courage, give us boldness, give us humility. Help us to be ones who point, point to the one who is the Son, who is light itself.